I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And welcome to Seeing Red, a, a UK, UK true crime podcast. podcast. Shut up, Bethan. <laughs> We're not going to be able to say that for much longer. If you saw the announcement on social media last week, then you'll know that we are broadening our horizons with effect from September when we launch season three. When you launch season when three. When I as launch well. season three. Crazy. Bethan's, Bethan's taking a little bit of time away because she's having a baby. Because I'm fat now. <laughs> Um, But we're going to be featuring cases not just from around the UK, but from across the globe. And actually, I'm really happy that everybody's given us some really good feedback around that. I was worrying that a few people might say, no, it has to stay UK. But actually, everybody seems really on board with it. And we've already had people saying, look at these cases from my home country. So that's really, really fun. And for me, I know that when we started the podcast, I'd kind of covered... By now, we're kind of nearly 50 episodes in. So I've covered all of the big cases that I've really wanted to cover. And I'm not scratching around for new cases because there's so many interesting ones still out there like today's case. Um, But there are loads of cases now from across the world that I really, really want to get stuck into. Big ones, some that you'll know, some that you won't know as well. And we've got quite a lot of international listeners. So I think it's only fair now that that we kind of go out there. I do agree. I feel like mine's probably going to stick around the UK for a little while because I've still got so many cases though from where... I've been researching and not managed to get into cases enough. So I feel like mine might stay generally UK based. But we want a balance anyway. So all we're going to be doing is kind of including some cases that are away from the UK. So I think the majority will still be UK. We're just opening it up now so we can include some others. Yeah. And then you won't get berated when you do a case that's not from the UK. <laughs> exactly. Um, so thank you to our wonderful Patreon supporters. And this week, thanks to Kate, who increased her contribution. Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss. Which we did a crossover episode with in season one. Go and check it out. The sound wasn't great on that one because we did it through some special technology, which was oh, shit. Oh, yeah. No, it was just that we had to record it with America. International. Yeah, an international collab. Um, If you would like to come and join the Patreon party, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. We've got some bonus episodes on there and all of our patrons receive exclusive seeing red merchandise as a thank you for supporting the show. And today's case has actually been suggested by one of our patrons, the lovely Carol Wood. Thanks for getting in touch, Carol. And it's a really interesting case, one that I'd not come across before. Um, So it's only from about 11 years ago, I think. But um, many thanks for bringing that to our attention. I've purposefully not looked at any information about this when you um, mentioned the name and that sort of thing. So it's going to be a nice surprise for me as well. Um, And thank you also to Jay Ash, who reached out with a case suggestion. I really hope I said your name properly this time as well. I've told her off, Jay Ash. Yep, he has. Um, So we'll definitely be covering that at some point in the near future as well. And if you have a case that you would like us to feature, please do get in touch in all the usual ways. We are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk, which we have definitely said .com before, but I checked it this time. It's definitely, definitely (laughs) .co.uk. Oh my God, it's nearly been a year. We should definitely know our our own email address yeah um obviously just get in touch with us as well even if you don't have a case you necessarily want us to cover just get in touch and chat with us we are loving how many people are getting involved on social media recently um just wanted to give a quick shout out to ellison off of instagram so thank you for getting in touch and just everyone who leaves us comments um any constructive criticisms although 
Mark sometimes doesn't take that as nicely Shut as he up. should. I do. Um, and then also just everyone who's been getting involved and chatting to us. So thank you, everybody. Yeah, we've got about 1,250 on Instagram now, um, a good few hundred on Twitter and Facebook. So if you're not following us on those platforms, then uh, please why do. Why not? Then why not? <laughs> yeah. We um, have a lot of fun, especially the Facebook group. I'm a little bit worried for when you join Facebook, Mark. Damn it, I've got to join. You and... have to join Facebook and... Well, I've told what them to be nice What do they call nice it? I've got to be like the admin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Watch this space. Okay, so Mark's going to be telling us today's case, so take it away. On the 22nd of January in 2008, Emmy award-winning TV and filmmaker artist Diane Chanery Wickens arrived home to the picturesque cottage she shared with her husband David in Duddleswell, a small hamlet in East Sussex. Opening the day's post, Diane discovered an itemised phone bill, which included two numbers that she didn't recognise. Diane had recently been working away from home on the ITV comedy Benidorm, which was filmed in Spain, and it seemed that during this time the numbers were being called several times a day. Over the years, Diane had batted off constant rumours of her husband's infidelity, even telling one close friend who actually phoned Diane to say, I'm having an affair with your husband, that she was just jealous. And some of Diane's friends have since commented that she had trouble facing up to reality. I think perhaps one of those people that always sees a good in people, an eternal optimist. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, but it does kind of make you a bit more susceptible to being the victim of crime. Yeah, and also not expecting that this would be true. I think you're just burying your head in the sand. I think that's what it is, yeah. Mm. And she's a she's an optimist, which is just like me. The complete opposite of me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so negative. Oh my God, so negative. Anyway, so um, this time, despite her everlasting optimism, something must have snapped in Diane. Clearly suspicious at the numbers staring back at her on the bill, she decided to call them. One led her to the voicemail of a woman with a sultry voice, a woman whose voice she didn't recognise, and the other number led to a gay chat line. Diane hadn't made the calls, and the only other person living in the house was her husband David, so this wasn't looking good for him. Finally ready to face up to reality, Diane decided to confront her husband, a decision that would cost her her life. Diane, who was 48 at the time of her death, was born into a close-knit family, one of three children. She went to the local grammar school before moving on to the London College of Fashion. At the age of 23, she landed her dream job, a two-year apprenticeship at the BBC as a hair and makeup artist. From there, Diane would go on to spend the next 25 years building a successful career as an award-winning TV and film makeup artist, winning an Emmy for her work on the film Arabian Nights and a BAFTA nomination for her involvement in the BBC sketch show Dead Ringers. Diane was well regarded by her colleagues and worked steadily, often travelling abroad to different film and TV sets around the world. She was in demand and she was successful. But the same couldn't be said for her personal life. In demand, yes, but successful, no. Diane had always struggled to pick the right man when it came to relationships. Before meeting David in 1997, she had been in a violent relationship. When this finally came to an end, Diane fell into the arms of a married vet who, although officially separated from his wife, still lived in the marital home with her. Unsurprisingly, this proved to be a complex relationship that wasn't to go the distance, and whilst her career continued to prosper, it seemed personal happiness would always elude Diane. 
That was until 1997, however, when at the age of 37, she met David Chainery when he was recommended to her as a medium by the British Empire actress Jill Greenacre. Do you remember British Empire? Um, no, oh. I've never seen that. Have you I'm, heard of it? Yeah, well, I've yeah. heard of Jill Goodacre, Have uh, Greenacre, you? whatever Greenacre. her name is. Well, you've obviously not heard of her not if you don't properly. know her fucking surname. But um, I was saying, oh, about the fact that he was a medium. Yeah, I'll come on to a bit more of yeah. it because he did everything. It's um, not something I, I'm not saying like I don't believe in it, but I'm very sceptical. So I'm always really open to like talking to people who do believe in it to see if they could change my mind. It's really interesting to me. I think I used to believe in it all, but I I don't think I do now. I don't know. I'm still a bit open-minded, but I definitely lean more towards, hmm, not sure. Mm. So David was a complex character whose upbringing was far less conventional than Diane's. Growing up in Beckenham in Kent, he lived with his parents, elder brother Derek, and a younger sister Elizabeth, as well as his maternal grandparents who also resided at the family home. As a child, he said he felt a special bond with animals and children, and somewhat disturbingly, he spoke of hearing mysterious footsteps around his bed at night, and said he could hear voices pop into his head from time to time, which he had no control over. When he was 10, his grandmother, to whom he was very close, died, and this had a profound effect on the young David. He couldn't understand how someone who he loved so dearly, someone who he depended on, could be snatched away from him so suddenly. Struggling with his loss, David's pain began to manifest itself physically when, at the age of 12, he developed constant back pain and he also began to struggle with a speech impediment. Around this time, David's mother and sister became involved in spiritualism. I just cannot say that word. Spiritualism. You said spiritualism. it absolutely fine. Yeah, spiritualism. Okay. I'm pretty sure you said it spiritualism. fine the first time. Spiritualism. Now, you're saying it weird now. I just can't say it. Just just go from the next word because you're going to make a fool of yourself. I just have. <laughs> and, they, and they encouraged David to meet with a friend they had met at the healing circle they attended. Recalling this meeting some years later, David would go on to describe how this woman managed to heal his back pain through a touch alone. He said, she sat me on this chair and just talked to me. She put my hand on my back and she took all of the pain away for four days. That was spiritualism. Spiritualism. That, <laughs> that was spiritual healing. But it was not until some years later that David properly became involved with the movement when he accompanied his mother to her regular circle meeting. At the weekly sessions, he learnt about the powers of spiritual healing, along with tarot reading and clairvoyance, and he felt he found his calling at this time. By the time he met Diane in 1997, David was earning a living from giving tarot readings, delivering exorcisms, and holding services in spiritual churches around South East London. After being introduced by Jill Greenacre, David visited Diane to do a tarot reading, and afterwards she invited him to a pantomime. A friendship blossomed between the pair and when Diane was sent to the Isle of Man to work on a film called Appetite, she called David saying there were problems with the crew and confided in him that she was being visited in her room at night. David flew out to exercise the spirits, explaining they were the lost souls of mentally ill patients sent to the island by the Victorians. See, when I hear stuff like that, I just think, come on. I don't know, because... It depends, like, if you believe that spirits continue on, and if they are a bit tormented, maybe they would still be around. I do believe in ghosts, 
definitely believe in ghosts. I'm just so sceptical of everything now. I never used to be. Mm. Let us know what you think. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what everyone thinks. I also wonder if um, she's just called him and been like, there's a problem, you need to come, and then he just wanted to come and have a little bit of a, oh, I have to visit her room at night. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could be because by the time she returned home, the two were an item and within weeks he'd moved into her flat. So things did move very quickly. Whatever he was doing, he was doing it well. It obviously worked, yeah. Um, They married at Wandsworth Registry Office in June 1997. So this is literally like less than six months after they met. They then had a spiritual ceremony in Dorset. Of course they did. David's best man, Carol Van Bommel, who was actually Diane's friend, said he and her other friends had misgivings about David from the start, however. Diane was the kindest woman and would do anything for the people she loved, he said. He moved into her flat with just a plastic bag. I was his best man because he had no friends. She did everything for him. When we asked her why she had married him, she would simply say, because he asked me. What followed would prove to be a mismatched marriage that would see David continue to practice as a spiritual healer while Diane supported him financially. David wasn't totally unsuccessful, however. Over the years, he built up a steady stream of clients, some well-known, probably as a result of Diane's work on the fringes of show business, and he established a sort of cult following. Women flocked to him because he listened to them in their darkest hour when nobody else was there for them. They fell for his bullshit spiritual healing bollocks and recommended him to their girlfriends. Sorry. (laughs) Now we know what Mark really thinks. Um, And it was through this network of vulnerable, often wealthy women that David was able to satisfy his desperate lust for sex, money and power. It pretty much always comes down to one of these three. Oh my God, always. When we're looking at murder. Always. So yeah, I've kind of put my cards on the table and called it bollocks. Do you know what? No offence to anyone who actually... Yeah, no offence to anyone who believes in it. And I know a lot of people find comfort from it. It's just my personal opinion. That's the thing. We always say on this show, don't we? It's our opinions at the end of the day. Um, I'm still interested to find out what people think. Don't have a go at me. Diane was often away for long stretches with her work and it was these prolonged absences that allowed David to shag his way around the southeast with gay abandon. So brazen was David that he would tell locals at the Laughing Fish pub that he was estranged from his wife and he would often visit the pub with a woman who he described as his girlfriend and these were locals that would have known him and Diane that would have known Diane. So he was just going there and saying, yeah, we're not really together anymore, this is my girlfriend, even though that was all lies. That's so mean. And they'd just all be thinking it was true because she's not there to say anything different. And I think she was kind of not really around much because, as I said, she was really successful in her chosen career and she did work away an awful lot. She was an award-winning TV and film makeup artist, so... By nature of that, she's travelling around a lot. And I think their home was 40 miles from London, so not too far. She probably commuted a bit, but I guess with long hours on set, she was probably away even when she worked in London. That's really sad. I feel sorry for her. I do. Mm. After becoming ordained as a spiritual minister in 2002, this is where I have a problem. I'm just like, you can't be ordained as that, surely? But fine. Anyway, after becoming (laughs) ordained as a spiritual minister, David took to wearing a dog collar and prancing around the neighbourhood with that air of authority that these types revel in. And it was this arrogance, this bravado, that led to women flocking to him. 
David volunteered at the Lavender Line, which was a railway next to the Laughing Fish pub. And one man, Peter Onglet, a fellow volunteer, said David would often be visited by women whilst working there. He went on to say he had his harem, if you like, well-dressed women he met through being a spiritualist minister. So back to the night of Diane's murder. What happened on the 22nd of January in 2008 will forever remain a mystery. What we do know is that David murdered his wife in cold blood before reporting her as missing to the police two days later on the 24th of January. He told detectives he had travelled with Diane by train to London from East Grinstead so that she could attend a production meeting at the BBC. Do you know what? This is ringing a bell a little bit now. See, I, I, I couldn't recall it at all. Yeah, the the pretending that she'd gone missing and the train journey and stuff. I recognise that. I don't want to give anything away, so I'm not going to say anything. But yeah, I do recognise this a little bit. Don't spoil it. You'll only be spoiling it for yourself. Well, no, I, I'd also be spoiling it for the listeners, Mark. True. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, David said when they arrived in the capital, they went their separate ways. But the two had arranged to meet later that afternoon at Diane's hairdressers before returning home on the train together. He said she didn't show up as planned at the hairdressers. And that's when he called the police to report her missing. Officers immediately began to investigate and on the 30th of January, approximately one week after she had been reported as missing, the impressionist John Coleshaw, with whom Diane had worked on the BBC show Dead Ringers, made a televised appeal for information. He said, you just hope that somewhere there is one of those sensible explanations to this. And this was classic Diane. She had so many friends within the industry. So they did come forward and I think they put messages out on social media. These people have large followings. So they really were concerned for her well-being. The next day on the 31st of January, David was arrested on suspicion of murdering his wife. And he was questioned by police at Eastbourne Custody Centre. Investigations had disproved David's version of events. When officers examined CCTV footage from East Grinstead Railway Station for the day David claimed he and Diane had travelled to London together, there was no sign of her. David was there on his own. He boarded the train on his own and he got off in London on his own. Diane, it seemed, had not travelled to London with him as he had claimed to detectives when he had reported her as missing. That was what I remembered and... It's just so stupid because everybody knows that the trains have got loads of CCTV. And the stations. Yeah, and I remember that. Like They just were like, well, well clearly you went on your own, so... Yeah, so why are you lying, yeah. why are you lying to us about this? Ridiculous. I, yeah, so... For... People make stupid mistakes, though, don't they? Like... Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Further damning evidence presented itself when executives at the BBC confirmed that there was no meeting arranged for that day and they hadn't been expecting Diane at all. Again, just, like, make her an appointment at the hairdressers or do, like... Just for use God's your brain. Sake, yeah. Just oh. spend half a day with a couple of drinks, really giving it some thought. I don't think you should have a couple of drinks. That's probably what went wrong. But it's so common, isn't it, these murderers that... Well, it's premeditated, so they've kind of thought about it, but they are caught out by stupid mistakes, and not just one mistake, but several. Yeah, and I guess, like, who knows what actually happened that night that she confronted him, but it it probably was a spur-of-the-moment accidental thing, unless it wasn't, I don't know. No, no. But... Even then, I think you'd just be like, right, what can I do to, to deal with this in the logical manner? 
I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing that he didn't. Maybe that means he's less of a psychopath than apparently I am. You could be right, though, when you say it was almost like an accidental thing. He definitely intended to kill her, I think, but it could be that... I hate to say it because we keep using it, but he <laughs> just saw red and he just kind of picked something up and or strangled her or something. Oh, no, that's what I mean. Like, oh, I don't okay. mean that he'd been planning it for weeks. I meant, yeah, that that happened that's in the heat true. of the moment. That is true, yeah. So, so he might not have... React. Yeah, it might not have been mm. totally premeditated, yeah. yeah. He might have just literally flipped out and gone mad mm-hmm. and killed her. Detectives knew David was lying to them, but they needed a body and they needed a motive. They continued to question David over a number of days whilst they forensically searched his and Diane's home and the surrounding area. But there was nothing. No concrete evidence presented itself in these initial searches. Eventually, David was released on police bail pending further inquiries. Officers knew they had their man and continued to build their case, but if they were going to make this stick, they would need hard evidence. Over the next four months, the police continued to investigate Diane's supposed disappearance, although privately they were now treating this as a murder investigation. A renewed appeal for information at a news conference led to police acting on what they called specific information, which resulted in them searching the 6,500-acre Ashdown Forest on the East Sussex-Kent border. However, this did not yield any results at the time. Further public appeals followed on different anniversaries of Diane's disappearance and boards featuring a photograph of Diane and her blue Audi A4 car were put up near East Grinstead railway station. Diane's brother Russell appeared at a news conference stating the family were bracing themselves for the worst and he described how his sister's disappearance had taken a heartbreaking toll on their elderly parents. And I think that's what's so cruel about this is that David had murdered his wife and disposed of her body and had then gone to the police and said she's just disappeared but he knows that actually she's dead and the whole time her family have got this kind of false hope and yes they're bracing themselves for the worst but a huge part of them knows that she is most likely dead but they are clinging to that 1% chance that she's alive and I just think that is so cruel to anyone but particularly to elderly parents. Yeah and to not give them any sort of closure as well like that yeah it's just horrendous it's it would obviously it's worse that she's been murdered than she's decided to disappear but they'd be thinking to themselves we know that she wouldn't just disappear without talking to us i know it's easier said than done and we've talked about it a few times of people can go missing if they want to but you know people well enough to know that it's unlikely and yeah they could have actually had some closure and a chance to actually grieve her loss rather than like you said clinging to that last shred of hope yeah i also think when like we've covered quite a few missing persons cases Mm. suspected murder and we're aware of lots as well and i think it's it's actually quite uncommon in those circumstances for the individual to actually be alive and to have decided to just disappear usually regrettably they are dead they have been killed yeah there's a reason that they've disappeared All the while, police continued to extend David's bail as they periodically pulled him in for questioning. In one such police interview, he changed the story of Diane's disappearance, saying the couple had parted at East Grinstead Railway Station and that his wife, too ashamed to face up to her money troubles and their failed marriage, had told him she was going to start a new life in Spain. David advised detectives she had made him promise, as a spiritual minister, not to tell anyone. 
Officers had a breakthrough in early May when they caught David on CCTV pawning Diane's jewellery for £100. The jewellery had significant sentimental value and this did not appear to be the behaviour of a husband whose wife was missing. And that's just really callous, isn't it? I know I'm stating the obvious, but what an awful thing to do. Yeah, and and again, it's almost like an insult to her memory as well. Like Those things meant something to her and he's chucking it away for 100 quid. And her family might never have got that jewellery back. No, you could have said that she'd left it somewhere when she left and then at least it meant something. Oh, he's such a horrible man. During a further search of the couple's home, police found other items of Diane's jewellery, items that appeared to have been hidden. When detectives forensically analysed these pieces, they discovered traces of Diane's blood. If that wasn't damning enough, on the 15th of May, four months after Diane's disappearance, a dog walker reported a strong smell emanating from under a holly tree in woods near the Lavender Line steam railway where David had volunteered. There, in a shallow grave, lay the remains of a badly decomposed body, which had been partially eaten by animals. What an undignified end. The area was sealed off and dental records soon confirmed this was the body of Diane. As we said, little attempt had been made to conceal the corpse and her killer had placed her favourite cowboy boots next to her body to suggest that she'd taken her own life. So that kind of explains why she wasn't really buried. I think what he tried to kind of suggest was that she'd hung herself. Oh, okay. So so she'd just then fallen down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, But this did look unlikely when detectives discovered the shoe tree still inside the boots. Oh, for God. Again, like, he's just so stupid. I did have to look at what shoe trees were. The, one, the things that keep your shoes in shape. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I have some some boots that are, like, knee-high ones to try and, like, make sure that they stay in the right ankle shape. Yeah. One, oh, for God's sake. So he so just, he just them yeah. there. He just it. obviously grabbed them from her wardrobe or shoe rack or whatever. Like, He'd oh, not even looked favorites. at them. Yeah, these were favourites. I've oh. done them there. Um, so yeah, it was just just terrible. Oh bless her. So David Chainery Wickens was arrested and charged within hours of this discovery. A post mortem was carried out. However, due to the level of decomposition, it was impossible to say how Diane had died. The most likely explanation was that she had been strangled. I think that would make sense as well if he's tried to make it look like she'd hung herself, because that might be a good way to kind of hide how he'd actually done it. So. And I think if he might be a link. If there'd been a blow to the skull, I think even with badly decomposed body you would see, see that. You would yeah. see a fracture. So mm-hmm. so I guess, yeah, you know, there's obviously ways that they were able to ascertain that it was most likely as a result of strangling. Mm. On the twentieth of May, Diane's brother Russell visited the area where her remains were found to pay tribute to his loving, thoughtful and deeply caring sister and Diane's friends and family awaited the trial of a man who they had never trusted. David's murder trial began on the 20th of January the following year at Lou's Crown Court. Throughout the six-week trial, the prosecution argued that Diane had confronted her husband on the night of the 22nd of January, and faced with the prospect of having his web of lies exposed, David had killed her before dumping her body less than 10 miles from their home and about a quarter of a mile from the Lavender Line steam railway track where he volunteered. 
Philip Katz QC, working for the prosecution, told jurors, if the defendant realised that he was going to be exposed as a liar, a charlatan and a hypocrite with debts up to his eyeballs, this would have been the clearest possible motive to kill Diane. She had to say only two words to him to bring his whole false life down around him in ruins. These two words were, get out. During his trial, David's mistresses gave evidence laying bare his double life. They claimed he had told them Diane was an alcoholic, that she'd had a mental breakdown and that she was unfaithful to him and that they were selling the marital home. The jury heard most of David's mistresses were wealthy working women who had gone to him for help with depression or broken marriages. David had listened to their woes and preyed on their vulnerabilities, telling them he loved them and that he could see their futures were bright. Further damning evidence of his character was presented when one former mistress told the jury he had fabricated a string of illnesses in order to earn her pity. The woman, a married opera singer, gave him £21,000 after he told her he was suffering from prostate cancer. Yet David's medical records indicated that he was in good health. And I can only speculate, but I do wonder if that married opera singer was somebody who is actually quite well known. I think, yeah, the fact that they have na- like not named her, but have described like married opera, that's quite a big thing. And she had lots of money, yeah. if she's kind of given him that much money. I might be mm. wrong, but I just thought maybe. I think for that to be some the way that the press have named her. Yeah. And oh, I, ugh, people who pretend that they've got cancer to try and get money just so low. And I feel like that should be called a specific thing. And I know yeah. we've got Munchausen syndrome, which no, this is that's just, not really because yeah. he's not doing it for attention and sympathy. He's purely he was doing it for for, for financial mm-hmm. gain. So I do feel that must be like an actual recognised condition because we see that loads. I just think it's um, they just know that if they lie about something like that, they'll get sympathy. I think that's it. They yeah. just, ugh. Giving evidence himself, David said he had only had affairs because Diane destroyed their marriage by sleeping with another man. To the horror of her family, he painted a picture of his late wife as a control freak who refused to give him a divorce out of pride. And we don't know whether there's any substance to the rumours that Diane had had an affair. Perhaps she had, and if she had, I really don't blame her because she was in a marriage where all of the kind of sexual energy and emotional energy was being diverted to other people outside the family home. And I also think, whilst it's not the right thing, people have affairs... It happens. It doesn't necessarily mean that gives you the right to do it. It just means perhaps you should then walk away from that person if that's the case. And he's just saying, well, I'm only doing it because she did it. And he could have still got divorced even if she contested it. Yeah, exactly. There's I also still think ways. That perhaps the person who she had an affair with might have come out as evidence or had come to the press so i think it was allegedly on a film set abroad somewhere like turkey or somewhere oh okay so i I mean i don't know maybe it's not it could be someone that doesn't live in the uk that wasn't really aware of this i don't know um but as i say that was just an alleged affair but equally i wouldn't blame her if she had had an affair David told jurors Diane knew their marriage was over and that he was in a loving relationship with another woman, which again, you know, we just don't know. Maybe they did have a bit of an open relationship, but again, it doesn't give him the right to do what he did. Giving evidence, Diane's mother, Joan Wickens, described Diane as the loyal wife that went along with whatever her husband said. 
When David took to the stand, he told the jury that murder was against his spiritual beliefs. He said, the principle is that you don't take life, any human life or your own human life, and that you don't hurt people by words, actions or deeds. If you do, I know as a spiritual medium what is waiting for me. Which I kind of understand because if you've got those beliefs and you know that if you do any of that in the afterlife you're going to pay the price, you wouldn't do it. But I suppose to me it just means actually he knows he's just kind of talking shit. Yeah, and you've got all of these things that you think, well, I know what's waiting for me, but you still fucking did it. Yeah, so I think he either just doesn't (laughs) Uh, care or he doesn't actually believe in what he's preaching. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think of that. I just really don't like him, Mark. I don't like that he's trying to be something he's not. You can have people who've got these real principles and then they really live by them and they live good lives. Yeah, but I hate it when people are hi- hi- hypocrites, hypochondriacs. Yeah. I was going to say no, hypocrites. Yeah. No, you're a I'm a hypochondriac, <laughs> definitely. Um, but yeah, I can't bear hypocrites and I think you're right. When people have beliefs, you might not disagree, you might not agree with them, but mm-hmm. you know, you can respect those beliefs yeah, when they actually exactly. adhere to them. But when people have beliefs and they kind of, it's kind of do as I say, not as I do, that really, really annoys me. Yeah, definitely. And David very much did lead a double life, and Jorah's heard he had called one of his mistresses, a woman called Kelly Lippett, days after Diane vanished, asking how to get blood out of a carpet. If that's not suspicious, I don't know what is. No. Mobile phone records also revealed that David had continued to keep up the pretense that his wife was still alive, desperately messaging her in the days after her disappearance to beg her to come back home. But within minutes of leaving one message, jurors were told he contacted three mistresses, telling one he was, quote, horny, and begging another to meet. Mm, That's not the behaviour of someone whose wife's gone missing, is it? No. Also, three mistresses. How can you possibly keep up with three mistresses and a wife? Jesus. And going round doing tarot readings and all that crap. Knowing his wife wasn't coming back, David eventually, on that evening, summoned a man he had met on a gay sex chat line to his marital home. The man told the court the only reason they did not have sex that night was that after being greeted by David in a white toweling robe at the door, he was not attracted to him. So it seems that he would just do anyone. Yeah, he didn't even, I guess, probably didn't know what the other guy looked like either. Maybe it was like like a a phone chat line, yeah. Yeah, and what was this, 2008? So I suppose it was a little bit before. But if he'd listened to our podcast, he'd know to go on Grindr. But I don't think Grindr was around in 2008, Mark. I think this is the issue. We didn't have our podcast then. We didn't get to warn him. True. We could have warned him not to be so shit with his murder and the trying to cover it up as well. Yeah. It did make me think, though, with three mistresses and exploring sex with men... Um, I, I do I do wonder if he was a sex addict. It is interesting, isn't it, that it's not just that he's having, um, like, gay sex chat lines and trying to meet men as well, like, and has a wife, but he's also got the mistresses too, yeah. so it's just... So he's not got this secret gay side and he's just exploring that. He ju- he loves women, he loves sex with women, but he's also exploring sex with men. So I did, I just wondered, yeah, I thought, is this... Sex. Yeah, I mm. thought this is someone who literally just loves sex and possibly who was addicted to sex. Yeah, perhaps. And certainly to the attention that he gets from manipulating these vulnerable people into, you know, very yeah. deep emotional relationships where he pulls the strings. 
Jurors were shown the CCTV evidence showing David travelling to London alone and they were also made aware of the fact that the BBC had no record of any meeting. They were told about his desperate attempts to pay debts by pawning his wife's jewellery in the days following her disappearance and of the bloodstained jewellery found in the marital home, which friends had actually testified as saying that Diane never took off, so that was very unusual for it to just be at home. If she disappeared, she would have worn it. Unsurprisingly, on the 2nd of March, David was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life. He was told he would serve a minimum of 18 years in prison, which seemed quite a light sentence to me. However, based on what we've discussed, I reckon that is partly due to the fact that it potentially wasn't premeditated. Yeah, I think there's no way you can, from the evidence that we've heard, say it was premeditated they know that this suddenly happened. It's the fact that he tried to cover it up obviously does look really bad, but yeah. Diane's elderly parents, Joan and John, her brother Russell and her sister Caroline, clutched each other's hands and wept as the jury foreman at Lewes Crown Court read that unanimous verdict after more than 16 hours of deliberations. I feel like I'd be... Like part of that unanimous sort of like straight away, yeah, he's guilty. Oh yeah, yeah. There's just two. There's lots of circumstantial evidence, but there's also lots of concrete evidence Definitely. here. Um, I I also think you know, sixteen hours of deliberation. Can you imagine the agony of that mm. wait if you're the family yeah. and the friends? And those jurors as well. They must have had a lot to just make sure they were making that right decision. Yeah. David, who was 52 at the time of his trial, showed no reaction as he was sentenced by Mr Justice Cook. The judge scolded David for maintaining what he called an, quote, elaborate charade, professing that his wife had run away because she could not cope with the breakdown of their marriage. In reality, the judge said, Diane had no idea about her husband's string of mistresses and continued to support him financially, believing she had a happy marriage. I'm not 100% sure on that. That's just his assertions on it. I don't know if that is actually the case. He went on to say that the sentence reflected the potent, aggravating factors that the defendant refused to admit what he had done and blackened his wife's character in court in a bid to escape justice. So maybe they very much were like, this isn't premeditated. Normally we would give a much reduced sentence if you'd kind of come clean and said. Yeah, I think so, because you can then at least have, um, obviously it's not manslaughter whatsoever, but it could be... There could be some mitigating, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, And I'm not taking anything away from the seriousness of the crime, but on a technicality, a good lawyer could have argued something. Especially if the moment that he hits her over the head or the moment that he strangled her, he calls an ambulance and says, I don't know what the hell just happened, but this has just happened. We were having an argument. That's going to really support you in that you then tried to do the right thing afterwards. Yeah. Instead... He goes on a little jolly to London, wanders around a couple of train stations, pretends that his wife went to the hairdressers. And I don't know why he went on that trip to London on his own. So stupid. He'd obviously come up with this kind of um, sort of alibi of we both went to London and she kind of disappeared there. But surely he must have known that it would come to light that she was never there. Yeah. Maybe he thought that London, because it's such a big place, it'd be easier to slip through the net, but forgot about all the CCTV. Yeah, maybe. Mr Justice Cook went on to say to David, you put her family through the agonies of not knowing whether she was alive or dead, but hoping against hope that she was alive until their worst fears were realised. 
You have lied to all and sundry with an ever-changing story as new evidence came to light, and you have continued to maintain the most preposterous lies before this jury. So David is still languishing in jail, rightly so. Good. He's got about another eight years or Mm -hmm. so left. Um, But obviously that is not going to bring back Diane, who seemed like an absolutely lovely person. Everybody who spoke of her said that she was kind, gentle, perhaps a little naive. But can you really blame somebody for being naive? No. She was an optimist. She was a lovely person. She always looked for the good in people. Yeah. But she paid the ultimate price. Hmm. So let us know what you think of today's episode. We hope we did it justice, Carol. Yeah, thank you for sending the idea through. As we said at the top of the show, if you have any ideas for a case that you would like us to feature, please do get in touch in all of the usual ways. Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, just search for Seeing Red. Email, so info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. Correct. Woo! Um, You can send us a carrier pigeon. No, don't be stupid, Bethan. Okay. The most backward form of communication we'll accept is an email. Um, (laughs) If you don't currently support us on Patreon but you would like to, then come and join the growing army of supporters over on patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. As we said, we've got a number of bonus episodes on there. We've got another couple that we'll be releasing in the next couple of months. And everybody who supports us through Patreon gets some welcome merchandise, which is pretty cool. <laughs> um as we said get in touch with us we love hearing from you guys we really do until next time we'll see you then bye bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.